Today we come to the final song, the last contender for the original Christmas number one. And of the four songs, this is probably the least well known. Uh, So far we've listened to Mary's Magnificat, Zechariah's Benedictus, the Angel's Gloria, and this morning we're going to hear Simeon's now. Nunc Dimittis. Not sure if that's the proper way to pronounce it, but that's the way I'm going to pronounce it. But what we're going to do this morning is slightly different, because what I want us to do is journey through the text that includes this actual song and raise lots of issues and actually ask lots of questions that you can take away with you and consider during this next week. So I'm not going to go into a huge amount of detail. Kids, you've been brilliant this morning, and I know parents are going, please, David, don't speak for very long. So I'm not going to, uh, but I really hope that you'll be able to engage with this at whatever stage or age you're at. But I was just struck by the sheer volume of challenges contained in Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through to 38. Uh, Now, it would be great if you could see a copy of that chapter. So if you have a Bible with you, could you please turn? If you don't have a Bible with you, there are Bibles in the pews, and it's on page 1028. So if you could see a copy... That would be great. Because this is a family service, uh, I hope that lots of what I'm going to look at can be taken away and discussed within the context of families. And by the end of this morning, you will each have eight questions. So I'm going to actually give you eight questions. So again, no matter what age you are, if you have got a pen, you can scribble these eight questions down. It would be really, really helpful if you do want to engage with this after we've finished. So Luke chapter 2, starting off at verse 1. I'm going to start actually at verse 21. Because what you discover immediately is the importance of rituals. This was a Jewish family. And so at eight days of age, Jesus is taken and is circumcised, and then he is also named. And then after 40 days, the family are able to go to the temple to offer a sacrifice for Mary's purification. Now, incidentally, if you had a baby girl in that culture, you had to wait for 80 days. Whereas after the birth of a son, she was considered pure again after 40 days. I'm not going to comment on that. Okay? And according to this particular, uh, or according to Luke, this particular visit to the temple also included an act of dedication. So you have circumcision, you have naming, you have purification, and you have dedication. Now, I'm not going to say anything or much detail on those specifics, but I do want to mention the importance and the value of ritual. And I remember doing some study at Belfast Bible College back in 2002, and one of the highlights was this, and I'm sure many of you have had this experience, but one of the highlights was Desi Maxwell's class on Judaism. How many people have ever heard Desi? Quite a number of you have. And essential to Judaism is the importance of marking Not only the ordinary, but also the special events in life. So, of course, birth is marked, as is whenever you reach a certain age or stage of life. But within Judaism, God is also to be honoured in one's rising up, in one's lying down, in one's going out, in one's coming in, as you get dressed, as you sit down to eat a meal together. And the reason for this is to recognise the sacredness of life and the presence of God in the everyday. This is a group of people who realize that God is near to them 24-7, and they want to mark that, and they want to note that. 
And as I was thinking about this, it got me wondering how many of us, and I do speak into my own life here, but how many of us go through days, busy, busy days, whenever we hardly acknowledge that God is even there? And one of the very real challenges I believe that we face in an increasingly secular and increasingly postmodern, whatever that means, post-Christian society is to find effective rituals for celebrating the presence of God in the ordinary. Can I say that again? That one of the very real challenges that we face in an increasingly secular, postmodern, post-Christian context is to find effective rituals for celebrating the presence of God in the ordinary. And that's why prayer, first thing in the morning, that's why celebrating the goodness of food at mealtimes is worth pursuing because unless we practice these and other rituals, our awareness and our experience of God in everyday life may increasingly recede. And so here's the first question I want you to take away with you. What ritual observances could I inject into my daily life to ensure that I, that we as a family, maintain an awareness of God and the presence of the Holy. Back to the text. Verse 25, we're then introduced to the singer of our fourth song, who is an old man, as Gordon has said, an old man called Simeon, who is described in two words, righteous and devout. And if you remember when we looked at Zechariah, whenever he was introduced, he was described in two words, righteous and blameless. That got me thinking, and here's a second question for you. What two words could be written over your life? What two words could be used to describe you? And if you want to sort of add, that's slightly an uncomfortable question, I know, but if you want to add to the sense of dis-ease, let me throw out another challenge to you. Ask someone you know, either a parent or one of your kids or a friend or a colleague or a neighbour to describe you in two words. I wonder what they would come up with. Let's move on quick. But Simeon was also expecting, because look at verse 25, because it says that he was looking forward to the consolation of Israel, which is a phrase that originated in the writings of Isaiah, meaning... That here was an old man who was waiting for the arrival of the messianic age whenever God would comfort his people. Simeon lived in anticipation that the promises of God would come true. This isn't one of the questions, but do we live in that sort of sense of anticipation? That the promises of God will come true. Verse 25 goes on, and the Holy Spirit rested on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, Simeon came into the temple. And one of the really interesting aspects of the birth narratives in the first two chapters of Luke's Gospel is the presence and the influence of the Holy Spirit. You see, whenever we think of Christmas, I don't, or maybe you don't, we don't tend to think about the role of the third person of the Trinity. And yet, as I've looked at these two chapters during December, I've been struck by his presence and his activity. Take a look at this with me. Look across at chapter 1, verse 15, because it says, The angel tells Zechariah that John, who's within her womb, or within Elizabeth's womb, 
And the angel tells Zechariah that he is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he's born. Chapter 1, verse 35, the angel then tells Mary Mary, that the Holy Spirit was upon her. Chapter 1, verse 41, you'll notice that Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. Chapter 1, verse 67, just before Zechariah bursts into song, it says that he has been filled with the Holy Spirit and starts to sing. And the question that I want to ask is this. What is the Holy Spirit doing in your life at the moment? I mean, since Pentecost, he's been given to all believers. So how is God, the Holy Spirit, influencing and guiding you at the moment? Simeon was righteous. He was devout. He was expectant. And he was spirit-led. But there was one more thing that he longed to see before he died. More than anything else... Simeon wanted to see the Messiah, the Lord's Christ, and God granted him the desire of his heart. Here's question four. What do you long to see before you die? I'm sure some of you have seen those lists, you know, 50 things to see before you die. What is top of your list? To see a relationship repaired? To see a loved one come to faith? To see an end to abject poverty. To see a cure for certain illnesses. To see the return of Jesus. I don't know. But you see when you leave here today, can I encourage you around your lunch table to ask each other that question? What do you long to see before you die? And Simeon then takes Jesus in his arms and he sings this song of praise. And he rejoices because now it says he can die in peace because my eyes have seen your salvation. What his eyes have actually seen is a baby boy who's no more than a month old being carried into the temple by a poor family who have just hiked about 60 miles from Nazareth to Jerusalem. So how could Simeon say, I have seen your salvation? You see, Simeon was someone who could clearly see beyond the obvious. With the eyes of faith, Simeon could see the bigger picture. So, you know, we're all familiar with the proverb, seeing is believing. But in Simeon's case, the opposite seems to have been true. He believed, and therefore he was able to see reality. God's reality. Which begs the fifth question. What do I see? Where is my focus? As a direct result of my belief in God, do I see beyond the obvious? Beyond what everybody else sees? Beyond the natural? Beyond the temporary? Beyond the tangible? Am I able to see with the eyes of faith the supernatural? The eternal? The invisible? The unseen? What do you actually see? Simeon then sings that Jesus is a light, a light of revelation for the Gentiles. In other words, they were included in this salvation story. 
which is a reoccurring theme, because you remember back to last week, whenever the angel said to the shepherds, I bring you good news of great joy that is for all the people. No one is excluded. But Simeon also sings that the light was a glory to the people of Israel. That's verse 32. In other words, by the arrival of Jesus, the nation of Israel is now vindicated in the eyes of the world. And so this baby that lies in Simeon's arms, he can see this baby as being the light of the world. The entire world. And in recognition of that fact, he begins to sing. And the song then comes to an end. And in verse 33, I find it really interesting that Mary and Joseph are amazed at what Simeon has just sang. Which, when you take a step back and think about it, seems slightly strange. Why are Mary and Joseph so amazed, given all that they've already been through, given all that they have already heard? Surely nothing should have come as a surprise to Mary and Joseph about this baby boy anymore. And yet whatever it was that Simeon saw, beyond what everybody else could see, wrapped up in this little infant, caused them to be taken back by his words. And Simeon blesses Mary and Joseph. But then he turns to Mary and he says a few things that must have disturbed her. Verse 34. This child is destined for the falling and the rising of many in Israel. And he'll be a sign that will be opposed so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed. You see, this salvation through Jesus appears to have A dark side. Not everyone is going to take kindly to this Jesus. There will be falling as well as rising of many in Israel. Jesus will be a sign who will be spoken against. He will cause a crisis in Israel. People will be divided in their reaction to this Jesus. Opinion will be split over him. Decisions will have to be made either to be for him or against him. Salvation does not, it would appear, come automatically to all. Jesus is available to all, but not everyone is going to accept him. So question six. What's your response to Jesus this morning? Or, to ask that in keeping with the text, what inner thoughts do you hold about the Christmas Christ child? What in our thoughts does the Christ child reveal in you? And then Simeon tells Mary that a sword will pierce her soul. And I know this has been interpreted in many different ways. But what seems clear, whatever way you look at it, is that Mary's life as the mother of Jesus was going to include difficulty and pain and sorrow. And with hindsight, we all know just how true that turned out to be. And I don't want to read too much into this. But I think it's worth saying that life with Jesus still includes its fair share. In fact, sometimes it seems more than its fair share of pain and difficulty and sorrow. Jesus is a light. Jesus came to give life in all its fullness. But balanced with that, we've got to recognize the cost, the challenge in following him. And Luke then introduces us to a lady called Anna, a prophetess, who is at the temple when all this is going on. Now, Anna is not a particularly well-known Bible character. In fact, she only appears in these three verses of Scripture. 
And like Simeon, Anna is old. We know that she is at least 84 years of age. And according to verse 38, you'll notice that whenever she saw Jesus, Anna began to praise God and to speak about the redemption of Jerusalem. Now again, all she saw was this baby. And so like Simeon, here was a woman who could see beyond the obvious. Anna had a depth of insight and understanding that very few others possessed. Simeon and Anna have been described as the senior citizens in Luke's version of the events surrounding the birth of Jesus. Yes, Zechariah was old, but he was not as old as Simeon and Anna. And in that culture, a great deal of respect was given to those who were at a later stage in their lives. It was as if more weight was attached to their words because they had seen more, they had experienced more, they had endured more, they had lived more. And I'm not sure that that's necessarily the case in our context where being young, staying young and looking young is now everything. And the streets of Jerusalem and the temple courts would have been teeming with people that day. And virtually no one else seems to have noticed this young couple carrying this little baby into the temple courts. But Simeon and Anna noticed. And they appeared to have known and understood more than anyone else. They knew the identity and the potential of this baby being carried in his parents' arms. They brought a fresh perspective. And at a family service or an all-age service, I just want to take the opportunity to stress the value and the importance of old age. Not in some patronizing way, I hope, but in recognition of a God who is not ageist. A God who uses young, vulnerable girls like Mary and a God who uses old, vulnerable women like Anna. And all the characters that are crammed into these first two chapters of Luke's gospel are at various stages of their lives. And as a local church, we need to celebrate the diversity of age that's sitting in these pews this morning. We we each, from the youngest to the oldest, have so much to offer and so much to contribute and bring, not only to God, but to one another. Young people who are here this morning, can I say you have so much to learn from the older members of this congregation? In Job 12.12 it says this, Is not wisdom found among the aged? Does not long life bring understanding? And the answer is very often yes. And therefore I would encourage you young people to allow the older people in this church to influence your life. Look for and take opportunities to hear their wisdom. And older people... Love the young people that are here. Pray for them. Whatever you do, please don't see them as the church of tomorrow. The young people who are here this morning are part of today's church. And they need to help shape its expression. And so the question I have for question seven is in two parts. Young people, what is your attitude to old people? And old people, what is your attitude to young people? Back to Anna, nearly done. Because there was another, in fact, there were three other very definite reasons she was so tuned into what God was doing. And is that not what each of us long for? Those of you who are here this morning who've committed your lives to God, do you not long to be tuned into what God's doing? 
God's story continues to unfold. God is still at work. God is still active and he invites each of us to be part of what he is doing as he accomplishes his purposes. Now as Christians, we want to be attentive to God's voice. I want to hear, I want to recognize his promptings in my life. But the problem is, or at least I want to suggest, one of the key problems is this, that life is so busy. Life is so cluttered. Life is so distracting that we lose reception. We don't seem to be able to pick up the right frequency, and so we miss hearing the divine whisper amongst so much interference. And life in the 21st century is manic for many of you. I know that. I hear that already. I sense that. There never appears to be enough time. There are so many demands, so many pressures, so many other voices that are clamoring for your attention. From the moment you hit the floor in the morning to the moment your head hits the pillow at night. And added to what is already a pretty lethal concoction of constant activity, we are encouraged to surround ourselves with as much noise as possible. And so with mobile phones and with iPods and with mobile phones with combined music players and we've got large screen TVs with surround sound. And it's not that there's anything wrong with any of those and the list could go on, but the danger is this. And again, I'm speaking to myself. The danger is this. We never create moments. We never experience opportunities whenever we're still. And we know that he is God. And we never create experiences whenever we are totally focused in on discerning God's voice. But how can you be? How can you be given our context? And for me, and for many of you, and for countless Christians throughout the history of the church, a key way to tune into what God's doing, to hear what he might be saying to us, is via the practice of spiritual disciplines. Now, I'm not going to say very much about these now, but see, in the new year, I think it's around March time, we're going to do a whole series on Sunday evenings looking at each of these in turn and how important they are in our lives. Now back to Anna because I'm sure some of you are wondering, hold on a minute, where is this coming from? Take a look at verse 37. Here was a woman who it says, worshipped at the temple with fasting and prayer night and day. Now I know she was a prophetess and I know that her living arrangements were quite unique. She actually never left the temple. But it's her commitment to the spiritual disciplines of prayer fasting and worship that is worth noting. Anna's life was focused in mind, in body and in activity on engaging with God and that is a commitment we can all pursue. Question, not the one I want to ask but another question. Are these practices that characterise your life? Should they? Or are these just for the really king? Are these a type of ritual? And are we back to where we started this morning? Could these be injected into our lives as families where we begin praying together, fasting together, worshipping together, serving together? However we view the spiritual disciplines of the Christian faith, I do hope they can be seen as tools, powerful tools, 
that allow us to experience the presence of God in our everyday lives? And so here's the eighth and final question. How can I become more attentive to God's voice in 2009? And what role might spiritual disciplines play in that pursuit? And so my encouragement to each of us, young and old, are as we're about to begin a new year, with all those renewed and great intentions, is to ensure, please take time on a consistent basis to create opportunities to hear God's voice. Because it's becoming so difficult. And the text ends. And that's us, and those are our eight questions. And that's also our series over. We've looked at four songs and their context in Luke chapter 2. But I wonder, what was your favourite song? What was your favourite tune about the baby boy born to Mary and Joseph and born for us? And Christmas may be over, but please, let's not stop singing about Jesus in 2009.